Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. It is wonderful uh, to be here with you all this morning in Lakeland. Um, so grateful for what God has been doing in and through all of you. And uh, I'm really grateful for the friendship with Ian and having met Molly and their children and, uh, and some others here um, over the past few months. And um, I'm just really grateful for what God is doing here and um, I think it's going to be wonderful uh, for us to plant a church down in South Florida. And uh, we're, we're looking to you all, knowing that God is moving and having an impact in this community through you all, um, is an answer to prayer. So I just want to thank God for you all. I want to thank God for Ian and, um, and just for the friendship of this church. Many of you all I hope to get to know over the course of the next few years, if not the next few weeks. And uh, I want to thank Olivia for reading the scriptures for the worship team this morning. Such a wonderful atmosphere and presence of God here. And um, it's been great. I hope it's been great for you all going through the parables of the gospel, right? Amen? All right. I'm from a tradition where folks talk back to me when I'm <laughs> speaking. So I'm going to ask you all to Loosen up a little bit and just talk back to me every once in a while. If I say amen, you can say amen too, all right? Or uh, something. Yeah, come on. There we go. There we go. There we go. All right. Somebody's with me. Good. Um, I want, I'm not here alone. I'm here with my family, my wife Brenda and my sons Alex and Andrew. Hey, wave, wave to everybody. All right. Sorry. That's embarrassing for them, I'm sure. But... I'm here with them, and um, our daughter, Alyssa, is, uh, is away at college, um, and just want to thank God for our family, thank God for, um, for what he's been doing in our lives. And um, as we, we look into the Word of God this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, the parables, the parable of laborers uh, in a vineyard. And as I mentioned, um, have three children. My daughter's away at college, and um, you know, growing up, she had this innate sense of fairness in her. Everything had to be done uh, fairly, right? If we were playing a game, um, she wanted to make sure the game was fair. And normally, um, her brothers uh, understood that her idea of fairness meant that she had to win the game. <laughs> So often while they were playing, I would notice that she changed the rules as the game went on if she was not, if things weren't going in her favor. But she did have this innate sense of fairness, and um, I, trying to prepare her for the inevitable disappointments in life, would consistently tell her that life isn't fair. I told her that so much that if I were to call her now and start off with the sentence, life she would probably just say, isn't fair. And uh, whatever you might think about my parenting, the fact is that things happen in life that we're not prepared for. 
and um, that we try to protect against. People treat us in ways that, uh, that don't mirror how we've treated them or how we've treated others. Life sometimes gives you lemons. And when you try to make lemonade, you forget the sugar and you use salt instead. <laughs> because sometimes life... All right, good. I, I read of an older gentleman named uh, Joe who trusted Christ a few days before he died of cancer. And I don't know um, anything about his life before trusting Christ, what kind of man he was, but he was no longer facing an eternity without Christ, thank God. And one of the statements that he made before he passed away is this. He said, life is not fair, praise God. He had lived most of his life not trusting in Christ, not living for God through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he had experienced God's grace almost on his deathbed, and he knew it wasn't fair. Praise God. And as we continue this series on the parables of Jesus, we come to this one, the parable of the laborers. And there are some folks in this parable who might say, life isn't fair. Uh, prior to the telling of our parable in Matthew chapter 20 here, verses 1 through 16, in chapter 19, if we go back a bit, the disciples and Jesus are hanging out in Judea, and a young man comes up to them, and he's obviously smart, he's savvy, he's a guy who's worked pretty hard for what he had, he's probably expected others to do the same. Um, they call him the rich young man, right? And uh, he wasn't just rich, he was also conscientious. Uh, in his heart of hearts, he knew that something was missing. He had wealth, but he didn't have peace. He couldn't be assured that eternal life with God was his. He just knew it could not be assured just by the things that he had acquired. And he'd heard about Jesus, this great moral teacher who, uh, who taught about the kingdom of heaven and what it was like and possibly how to get in. So he came up to Jesus and his disciples, and he asked him this. He said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, if you would enter life or have eternal life, keep the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. In other words, don't, don't lie about or give false testimony about something or someone. He would say, honor your father and mother to sum it up. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the, the young man said this, I have kept all of these. What, what do I still lack? And Jesus says in verse 21 of chapter 19, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And Matthew records that this young man turns around and left the presence of Jesus very sad because he was very rich. He couldn't do it. He didn't really have ownership of his possessions. His possessions had ownership of him. He didn't really control his riches. His riches controlled him. And after Jesus uh, was talking with his disciples, after this young man turned and walked away, 
He was talking with them about how difficult it was for a rich person to enter heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And then Peter declared to him, he said, Jesus, see, we have left everything to follow you. We left our possessions. We're following you. We know we'll have eternal life, but, but what do we do to earn or what do we earn for everything that we've left in order to follow you? What will we then have? And Jesus tells them that in the new world, in the new heavens and the new earth, that they will sit on 12 thrones and that uh, there'll be judges along with Jesus on his glorious throne. And everyone who has left things to follow Jesus will have eternal life with him. And then he says something that describes how people will enter the kingdom of God, and it describes a way that things will be done in the new heavens and the new earth. He says this in chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And to help explain what he means to his disciples, he begins to tell this story, this parable, and he doesn't bury the lead. He gave the point of the story before he started it. He said, many who are first will be last and the last first. For, he says in chapter 20, verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So it's harvest time. And when the time comes, vineyard owners have to get all of the grapes off of the vine quickly so that the produce doesn't spoil. And so he goes out to hire additional workers in the morning. It says early in the morning, that's around 6 a.m. And he hires more workers a little bit later at 9 a.m. He goes back out at about noon. He goes back out at about 3 p.m. And finally, he goes out at 5 p.m. And he asks his foreman to pay everyone at the end of this 12-hour day, around 6 p.m. He asks the foreman to pay those who came last to pay them first. And to pay those who came first, pay them last. Now, if I'm in the group that came first at about 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm no accountant, but my calculations say that I've done about 12 times the work of the group that came in at 5 p.m. Anybody agree with me? Any accountants in the room? All right. And, and I know I agreed to the fair wage of one denarius, but it would only be right if I got paid 12 times as much as a guy who came at 5 p.m. and worked for an hour. So those work workers, in my estimation, they have to be making one-twelfth of a denarius. So I hope the foreman brought some change <laughs> for these other guys. But something curious happens. The, the, the master of the house pays each person in the five o'clock group one denarius. And, and a denarius is normally a whole day's pay for one hour of work. The first group gets really excited. 
Everybody who showed up at 6 a.m. had agreed with the master for one denarius. But that arrangement, that's got to be null and void now. They're about to be rich. This has got to be the nicest, most generous boss that they've ever worked for. Because if I'm in that first group, I'm real happy for these other guys. Guy that came in at 5, guy that came in at 3, the group that came in at 12 and 9, all of those crews. But I'm happier for myself and what I'm about to receive. Because it's only going to be right for me to receive more than them. And at the master's direction, the foreman pays one denarius to the group that came at 3 p.m. too. And that's kind of curious, but no big deal. He pays the same to those who came at 12 and those who came at 9. None of them worked the whole day anyway, so they really didn't deserve a full day's pay. Um, I understand that. And now the master calls that first group up. Let's say I'm in that group. Now that he's gotten the low-paid labor out of the way, that first group figures that the master is ready to direct the foreman to dig deep for them. Sun has been especially hot today. I'm sunburned by now. You can tell, right? <laughs> they're tired. Their clothes, their, their, their head coverings, everything is wet with sweat. Everywhere hurts. They're dehydrated. But it's going to be worth it because they believe they're about to get paid much more than they agreed, agreed to, 12 times as much. Why? It's only right. It's only just. When the foreman hands each of them one denarius, their agreed-upon price, they can't believe it. They're shocked. And here's where the heart of the first group of laborers is revealed. This is a group that got to the marketplace early. They were chosen first. They, they negotiated their pay. They worked faithfully. They worked hard. They only want what's fair. They only want what's right. They only want what's just. Or do they? You know, when we hear this story, our hearts have got to go out to this first group. I mean, I got to admit, when I, at first glance, I'm not 100% on board with what the master is doing here. I don't know about you. Or I, I'm just not in agreement. Not my heart. Because it doesn't seem fair. As far as I'm concerned, there should be a fair wage for the work that has been done, and it should be calculated based on the relative amount of work that was done by each group. So that group that came in at 5 p.m. should only get one-twelfth of what the first group received. Am I the only one here that thinks that? Okay, all right, all right. And there might be people that are sitting in this room right now who understand what it's like to work twice as hard as someone else may be in their own department, but only to receive a fraction of their pay. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's not fair. And is that what Jesus is trying to teach here, that unfair labor practices are okay, that the master who in this parable is God himself is not concerned with how hard we work? No, that's not what he's teaching here. God is a God of justice who cares for you. He calls his people especially to be people who are concerned with justice. So please know that he understands your pain if you're in that situation, and he will answer your prayer because he is the God who supplies all of our needs according to his riches, and he owns everything. But this parable 
reveals several things. First of all, something about the human heart. Dare I say, my heart and yours. Something that because we're marred by sin, we, we don't notice as being off kilter because we think it's normal. And what's off is our sense of justice and fairness. Because of the presence of sin in our lives, we don't have a good read on what fairness and justice really look like, especially from the perspective of the God of the universe who alone is just because he is the ultimate judge. Our understanding of justice is foreign to the heart of God, foreign to the kingdom of heaven. We see in this first group that their sense of justice is highly subjective. In other words, they want fairness for themselves. And for them, fairness for themselves is justice. If they got more than what they agreed to, that would be justice as far as they're concerned. But why? Because it would help them maintain their status as first. And after all that hard work, that's what mattered. Even if that meant restricting God in being gracious to the group that came and worked last. Remember that there were workers who started at 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., but, but in this parable, Jesus really focuses on the first group and the last group because the first group is only concerned with what that last group got paid, working for only one hour. So in verses 11 and 12, it says, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have burned, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Notice that they didn't tell the master, oh, no, 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 you made a mistake. They noticed what the master had done and it was offensive to them. It was offensive. The master had recognized the last group as equal to the first. That was the problem. Because in their minds, they had worked too hard to be equal. They were better. They weren't equal. They said, we were first, Lord. We worked more. We worked harder. And you did not reward us for that. So therefore, it's not right. It's not just. Not only did they see themselves as better because they worked harder, longer, but, but most likely uh, they outclassed those other peoples in their minds. Uh, uh, commentator, Professor Matthew Skinner said it this way, said, who spends the whole day waiting to be hired but doesn't find success until the end of the day? Remember, these, these folks at 5 p.m., when the master came up to them, uh, at 5 p.m., he saw them standing in the marketplace. He asked them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. He made no promises to them, just said, you go into the vineyard too. Who spends the whole day waiting to be hired but doesn't find success until the end of the day? In Jesus' time, these would be the weak, infirm, and disabled. Maybe the elderly too and other targets of discrimination, such as criminals or anyone with a bad 
reputation. A God who is just, then, is inclined to show special generosity to the poor and outcast. No wonder the respectable people got anxious. Close quote. God's generosity does not negate his justice. It doesn't seem fair to us because most of the time we're self-centered and sinful. But the amazing grace he shows to the most undeserving demonstrates that he truly is a God of justice. Tim Keller says this, he says, Biblical justice is concern for the most vulnerable, poor, and marginalized members of our society and making long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interests, needs, and causes. And where does he get this from? Well, this concept is all over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, because God wanted his people to know that through them, he would execute justice in the earth by, by caring for those who are normally considered last. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 7, it, it indicates that the one who is righteous, the one who is just or, or is doing justice, it says, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment proactively doing something for the least of these, the last of these, is doing justice. Not preferring the first just because of their hard work and effort. And Jesus ends up saying in, in, in Matthew chapter 25 concerning the final judgment of man, Matthew 25 verses 41 through 45, he says, he says this about the last day. He says, then he will say to those, God will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not a pretty picture. But why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this parable not only tells us something about our own hearts, but it also tells us something about the character of our God. We learn that our God, the master of the house in this parable, our God loves to give grace to the undeserving. Amen? And there are at least three things I'd like for us to see about this character of our God that we, that we sometimes call amazing grace. Number one, God's grace is unexpected and seems unfair. Talked about that a little bit. Number two, God's grace is just and gives mercy. And number three, God's grace is generous. First, God's grace is unexpected to us and seems unfair to us. But friends, this is why God has been gracious in even giving us this parable that we can read today. Through, through His Word, through this Word of God, by His Spirit, 
our minds are renewed to learn more about what God's kingdom is really like through this parable. And that's why uh, you all are being privileged to go through the parables of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've just talked about the shock of the first group as a master of the house gave the last group the same pay as to that which they agreed to. Uh, we've looked at it from their perspective. But listen, listen to how the master of the house reacted to their complaining, to their grumbling. Verse 13 says, he replied to them, or he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Now, now in the original language, um, that term no wrong is coming from the same word that means justice or, or righteousness. In biblical terms, justice and righteousness are are really closely related. I know sometimes we believe that righteousness is just about our own personal moral purity. Uh, but in the Bible, it, righteousness is about right action toward those who are in need by meeting their needs or, or by defending them if necessary. Master is saying, I'm not being unjust to you, not being unrighteous. I'm not doing you an injustice. Why? Because he says, I've done what I've agreed with you to do. Did you not agree with me, he says, for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or some chilling words. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Listen, if you're here today and you, you find yourself struggling with what the master of the house is doing in this parable, just know that God is aware. He knows that he sees, sees things far differently than we do. That's why this parable is being taught in the first place. He knows that the ethics of the kingdom uh, based on the character of the king himself is upside down compared to what our sin-influenced hearts are prone to naturally do. Jesus was aware that Peter and the rest of the, disciples, uh, of the disciples, they're probably squirming a little bit as he's giving this parable. Peter had just declared, oh, we're not like this rich young ruler, Jesus. We've left all to follow you. Now, what do we deserve for our efforts? Our King Jesus gives us this parable to help us not only understand what the nature of the kingdom of heaven that we're now a part of truly is, but what we should pray toward. Because the kingdom of heaven has not yet been fully realized yet. Jesus has not yet uh, uh, gone and returned to make all things new. So while we're here and our, our hearts are prone to accuse God of being unjust and unfair in his unexpected grace, he gives us this parable to help us to understand who he really is. And he also gives us a little, this little prayer that, that you'll recognize, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my heart, as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer because we need our own hearts now and our expectations of God to be shaped by His character and by the ethics of His kingdom. Now, there's at least one more thing to mention about God's grace being 
unexpected and seeming unfair, and, and that is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. His right to rule, His reign over all, all of creation because He is the Creator. And as the Creator, He's not like us, His creation. He is what, what theologians would call transcendent, meaning he's, he's over us, He's above us, He is separate and apart from us. He's not dependent on us, His creatures, in any way. Yet, He is also what they would call imminent. He is with us. He is with us. This is affirmed throughout Scripture as well. Uh, in this very gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, we're told at the beginning of, of Matthew's gospel that Jesus will be called Emmanuel. That's what? God what? With us, right? And as the gospel ends with Jesus standing on a mountain in Galilee telling His disciples, and lo, I will be what? With you always. Yes, He is imminent, but He's also transcendent. He rules over the universe. He does as He pleases for His glory and for our good. And, and we see that in the response of the master of the house. What does he say? He says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Isn't it amazing how we often attempt to wrestle control of our lives away from the God who so lovingly created us and wants to guide our lives? Because God is in control, we can have confidence and comfort in the fact that He does work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Amen. God's grace, unexpected, maybe even seems unfair. But we also learn that God's grace is just and gives mercy. There are three words to focus on in that statement, justice, mercy, and grace. And here's the difference between the, the three. Justice is when you get what you deserve. When you get what you deserve, then justice is done, right? Mercy is when you don't get, when we don't get what we really deserve. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And in this parable, although this is the way the kingdom of heaven works, the reality, the reality is that the last workers don't deserve to get the same pay as the first workers. Amen? Yeah. They haven't done the work. They haven't done the same thing. <laughs> but our God, our King, is intent on giving grace to them. Why? Because He can, and because He wants to. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you serve a God like that? Aren't you glad that God does not give us justice that we call for? I mean, what do I mean by that? One commentator said it this way. He says, the reason we object to equal treatment for all is precisely the objection of the workers in this parable. It doesn't seem fair. But we're fools if we appeal to God for justice rather than grace 
for in that case, we'd all be damned. Romans 5.10 shows us that prior to trusting in Christ for our salvation, we were, it calls us, enemies of God. Justice would mean that we receive what we deserve as enemies of God, death and eternal death. But Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's only by God's grace that I believe through faith that Christ lived the life that I could not live, that I did not want to live. He lived it on my behalf, and He died on the cross for my past, my present, my future sins, and that I am now made right, justified with God because He rose from the dead, and justice was accomplished because Jesus Christ suffered the punishment of my sins on the cross. They were paid for. And mercy is what was given to me. I didn't get what I truly deserved. My, my good efforts only revealed my selfish heart. Thank God that instead I received God's grace. And Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I just want to say thanks be to God for this indescribable gift of His grace. Amen? But listen, those who demand, those who demand God's justice by denying God's grace, their prayers will be answered. They will receive God's justice just without the gift of God's grace. In verse 14 of our text, the master tells these self-righteous, complaining, uh, first group, 6 a.m. workers, he said, take what belongs to you and go. Man, they get what they've earned, don't they? But they're away from his presence. God says, you have your reward. You, you have what you've earned. You, you were given exactly what you agreed to. And to demand that such work be rewarded with not just the agreed-upon pay, but more, I just need more than, than them, who you don't see as equal to you. That's to invite God to pay you what you deserve, what you truly earned, which is His condemnation away from Him. You won't have Him. You won't have His grace. And His grace keeps on giving because His grace, this is the third point, His grace is generous. It's generous. Look at what He says. He says, do you begrudge my generosity? Those are His last words before His declaration that the last will be first and the first last. Do you begrudge my generosity? This is a question. And the old King James Version translates that verse this way. I don't know if, wonder if anybody remembers this. He says, is thine eye evil because I am good? I need a good English, a British accent to say that. <laughs> is thine eye evil because I am good? Was that okay? That's all right. Y'all ain't from England, so you don't, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> That's, 
That's the old evil eye. That's the old evil eye. Folks would look at you a certain way. This is a real thing, hoping to plant a curse on you, right? Because they didn't like something about you. So they didn't want the master to be generous to anyone else, only to them. Remember, they agreed to one denarius, but when they saw others get more, they weren't only upset because they didn't get more. They were upset because a group of people they thought was lower than them was being treated generously. So it's evil eye time. God's grace generously gives us everything, everything. 2 Peter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1 verses 2 through 3 says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And by grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2 says that before grace, we were dead in our sins and in the ways that we trespassed against God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And not by works, not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Knowing this, I think we do need to carefully consider how we feel about God generously giving grace to those that we think are undeserving. Our, our thoughts about the practical parts of our lives shaped by the generous grace of a merciful God toward us that moves us to be gracious to others, that moves us to be gracious to our husband or to our wife or to our children or to our co-workers. When we think of the orphan or the widow, we can be easily moved. Not so much when we think about the homeless person or the addict or the immigrant. Sometimes we think that, eh, they got themselves in there. May God help us to not develop an evil eye when we see those who moved with compassion because of God's grace to them attempt to apply that grace to those whom we consider undeserving. May God help us to, to move with compassion toward those that we consider undeserving of His grace as we reflect on how gracious God has been to us and how generous He has been in that grace. God's grace, unexpected, seems unfair, just, merciful, and generous. 
and, and hearing about this new kingdom ethic and the character of our God can feel quite, can feel quite overwhelming, can it? I feel, I feel a bit like those 6 a.m. workers because I'm constantly, consistently bringing God my feeble effort, efforts, and, and I want Him to reward me. I want Him to reward me based on those. I, I, I struggle with prayer, but when I do find some consistency in prayer and devotion, that's when I want God to give me what I want right now. I know I didn't pray a whole lot last week, but I, I'm praying now, and I need you to answer me right now. I, I struggle with giving my time and attention to helping other people, but when I do, it's when I find myself complaining to God if I experience hard times at work or financially or with my health. I live like those first workers. I don't live like the last. Normally, I'm struggling to live out of God's grace and not according to my own efforts. So where's my hope? What gives me the power to do this? Jesus gives us the power to do this. Amen? By faith, I need to receive. I need to receive that He lived a perfect life on my behalf. By faith, I need to receive that He died on the cross to take the punishment for my sins so that the justice of God against me would be fulfilled by His death. And through faith in Him, His resurrection from the dead means I'm also raised from the death to life, from a life apart from God, from a life of death, uh, uh, to a life of, uh, in, as His adopted Son. As his adopted son, enjoying all the rights and the privileges thereof. And what was Jesus' focus? He also trusted in the grace of his father. Of everyone in the history of the world, he was the only one who was really treated unfairly. Only one. He knew no sin. He did nothing wrong. So listen to Philippians 2, verses 3 through 13, describe how we gain power from his life. Here's what Paul admonishes Philippian church. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to do His will, and to do His good pleasure. Amen? 
That's the hope. That's your power. I just want to close by reading a long quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones for you. He was a Welsh preacher who ministered in the United Kingdom for years in the last century. He said this, he said, the secret of a happy Christian life is to realize that it is all of grace and to rejoice in that fact. Do not keep a record or an account of your work. Christian accountants will be miserable. They are not like their Lord Jesus who himself left the accounting to his father, knowing that the only one who was worthy of pay was God himself. He deserves not some, but all of the glory. So give up being bookkeepers. Have no concern as to how many hours you have given to the work nor how much you have done. In effect, leave the bookkeeping to him and to his grace. Let him keep the accounts. Listen to him saying it himself. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, Matthew 6, 3. That is the way you're to work in his kingdom. You're to work in such a way that your left hand does not even know what your right hand is doing. For this reason, your father who sees in secret will reward you. There is no need to waste time keeping the accounts. He is keeping them. And what wonderful accounts they are. May I say it with reverence, this is Joan speaking, there is nothing I know of that is so romantic as God's method of accountancy. Be prepared for surprises in this kingdom. You never know what is going to happen. The last shall be first. What a complete reversal of our materialistic outlook. The last first, the first laugh, last everything upside down. The whole world is turned upside down by grace. It is not of man. It is of God. It is the kingdom of God. Life in the kingdom truly is not fair. Praise God. Let's pray.